Good day and welcome on board another special edition of Talking Space. I'm Gene McCulka, Sawyer Rosenstein, Mark Ratterman, and Kat Robeson are off tonight. Tonight is going to be a little bit of a departure from what we are doing here normally on Talking Space. What we do is we take the spaceflight headlines and uh, not just from NASA, but from other space agencies as well, and we first tell you what happened and then try to put some context around the story to kind of give you a little bit more of a highlight around what's happening and with all of this and try to make sense of it all for you and after what we've said let you decide on on what's been happening out there and what you think about all of this and of course we invite you to go ahead and uh express your opinion if you have an opinion on anything you've heard here on talking space give us a shout at our mailbag address that's mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com let us know what you think but um, tonight's going to be a little bit of a departure Uh, one of the joys about doing this kind of thing is you get to talk to individuals sometimes that really, really have made an impact, or have you, you've you've always wanted to meet, and you you get really, really excited when you do, because I mean the, these were individuals that made an impact on you, and you say, "Gosh darn it!" You know, I wanted I wanted to grow up to be this guy. Well, tonight is one of those individuals that uh, I I had the honor of talking to a while back ago. Uh, he uh, was the voice of uh, NASA's launch control at the Kennedy Space Center for many many years, and uh, was a witness eyewitness to history uh, for many many times. But one incident in particular. Uh, he was also the voice of launch control during the Challenger accident, and he has written a book about that and his recollections and his uh, his experiences from that day entitled Challenger and American Tragedy, uh, and which is one of the reasons why we're going to be talking with him tonight, but also to go ahead and discuss with him his career over the over the years with the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. PAO is such a difficult job, and it really, really requires uh, a lot of nuances. And hopefully we'll go ahead and learn a little bit about that particular job from one of the masters. A little bit about Hugh Harris. Um, Hugh Harris began his career with NASA back in 1963, as an information specialist at what was then called the Lewis Research Center in Cleveland, Ohio. Today it is known as the Glenn Research Center. He was promoted to the Chief of Public Information Office for 
Lewis in 1968, or should I say for Glenn. He was then transferred to the Kennedy Space Center in 1975, where he was responsible for planning and administering an information program designed to keep the public informed through the news media of activities, results, and the significance of aerospace programs conducted at the center. In addition to managing the news center, he provided a broadcast commentary for 100 piloted and expendable space launch missions. In 1985, he became deputy director of public affairs, participating in the management of all of Kennedy Space Center's public affairs, education and awareness activities, and NASA's wide planning of these function areas. Uh, In 1992, he was promoted to full director by of public affairs by then the uh, center director at the time, uh, Bob Crippen. Uh, He was born in 1932. He graduated from Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio in 1956. He served in the U.S. Army as an information specialist from 1952 through 1954. Prior to joining NASA, Harris worked as a radio newscaster for a local radio station here in New Jersey, WMTR, a reporter with a Metropolitan Daily and Magazine, writer for a major energy company. Significant awards presented to Mr. Harris include the NASA Equal Opportunity Medal in 1979 and Exceptional Service Medals in 1985 and 1988. He was also honored by the Space Coast Chapter of Federally Employed Women with its Distinguished Service Award for 1978 and 79. Welcome to Talking Space, Mr. Hugh Harris. Uh, Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Okay, um, just a real, just to to start off here with with how you got started as a journalist as far as your career is concerned. How did you decide it was was a career option? Was it sort of simply something that you kind of gravitated to, or was it something that for, you know, like some of us had it sort of thrown upon us and we kind of grew into the career? Um, And also, how did you just end up with what some folks really would consider uh, a dream job at NASA? Well, I I cannot rule out luck entirely because uh, I I started writing fairly early, uh, like in my teens, and uh, had a radio station or a radio program uh, while I was in high school. Uh, That was a dramatic show that I wrote uh, plays for, but mostly we did uh, non-royalty plays that were available. So I I sort of started in the media uh, when I was, uh, well, I was first on the radio when I was nine, but that was in a contest context. And then I became uh, a student announcer at the uh, uh, radio station for the Board of Education in Cleveland uh, when I was about 12. And uh, then luckily went to a high school where they actually had uh, what they called Radio English, which was uh, learning about how to uh, work on the radio. Now, you probably remember that I'm old enough that a lot of this was at a time when there wasn't television. 
Right. <laughs> right. Otherwise, we probably would have been doing that, although I did do uh, some television uh, while I was in the Boy Scouts and also in teenage years. So I had that kind of background, but I had always wanted to be a nuclear physicist. And the, uh, the problem was that uh, when I was ready to go to college, I couldn't get a, um, a scholarship to study physics, but I could get a scholarship uh, in, at Western Reserve University, which then merged with Case later, uh, to uh, study uh, writing and speech and all that sort of thing. So I guess not having the money to go to college uh, uh, took me from the physicist mentality into uh, becoming a writer. You mentioned uh, that you were doing radio and, and so on. Um, I know that radio is, because I've, I've done some radio programs myself on stage. We've recreated, you know, The War of the Worlds and a few Alfred Hitchcock uh, uh, adventures and what have you. Um, did that help you in any way, shape, or form? Uh, did you come sort of rely on some of that training? Because a lot of what you did as a as a public affairs officer, but especially being the voice of shuttle launch control, did that kind of help a little bit? Did you kind of pull on that, or or? Well, yeah, yes, yeah, of course. Uh, all of your experiences that you have, you know, always are used in whatever you're doing. And uh, uh, when I was. Uh, actually uh, going to graduate school, I was studying playwriting and directing, mm -hmm. uh, and I ran out of money and had to make a living because I already had a family. So the only job that happened to be open at the time that I uh, uh, was aware of was as a news reporter on a radio station in New Jersey. So I uh, started uh, really my journalism career uh, in radio, and then because radio paid less than newspapers, I uh, went to uh, one newspaper and then to another newspaper, and um, uh, then went back to Cleveland, where I was born, and worked for Standard Oil of Ohio for a while as a writer on their external organ, uh, house organ, and uh, then... Um, at, there was a time came when I really wanted to uh, go to work for NASA, and I applied to NASA, but they were taking a very long time making a decision <laughs> on hiring. And I was offered a job at the Federal Reserve Bank as a public relations person, and they came through immediately and said, uh, you know, we'd like you to go to work. When can you start? And I said, well, I would really like to work for NASA. <laughs> and uh, they said, well, we understand that. It, it's a little more exciting. And, uh, but if you don't get the job, then come back and talk to us. So uh, within another week or so, NASA decided they would hire me. And um, this was at the Lewis Research Center in right. Cleveland, which is now the John Glenn Research Center. So it's sort of uh, like many things, it depends on where you are and uh, what you reach out and try to do. 
I have to ask if you if you can recall the radio station or, or the station here in New Jersey is where we're New Jersey based. I just thought I'd go ahead and, and throw that out there. Uh, WMTR in Morristown. Oh wow, that's like right in my home. That's where I'm at right now, as a matter of fact. So uh, that that's kind of cool. I listen. I, I still kind of listen to those folks on the radio. So uh, that I didn't. I didn't. I didn't know that. Wow, that's that's amazing. And I worked on the Morristown Daily Record. So that's still with us too. By the way, still going strong. I might add. Uh, it's uh, and that's a that's a newspaper. Believe it or not, I I uh, I. I, I subscribe to online so that's that's kind of uh, that's kind of neat it's it's funny how 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 paths cross here and how that's right there's always somebody's always said said to me there's always a new jersey connection in every big story so <laughs> anyway um yeah you were the voice for uh, for shuttle launch control after you left um uh lewis to uh, or what is now uh, the glenn research center to uh, come over to uh, uh, the, the Kennedy Space Center. Um, and your book kind of highlights some of the preparation on launch day and so on. But what, what was the, the real typical uh, deal for preparing for a, uh, a launch? And um, what were the challenges? What were the, the, uh, the interesting you know, parts of that? And, and what, were the, you know, what were the toughest stuff? And, and what was the mo- most fun part about it? Well, the the fun part was seeing a successful launch, uh, but it also was getting to know people. People are the most important part of whatever you do in life, and they're the most important part of the space program. They're what the space program is all about. We we really uh, do science to improve people's lives. We don't do science in a uh, you know a sort of a blank room where. Right. Nothing else happens. But uh, in, in, in answer to your question, uh, the, uh, the most important thing is learning as much as you can about the various systems on uh, whatever vehicle you might be uh, going to do commentary for. So um, in, when we started the, uh, the shuttle program, uh, I sat in on many of the meetings uh, that the technical people had, and on their uh, uh, rehearsals uh, for launch, uh, in order to, uh, in well, in order to understand what they were talking about uh, when they were talking on the uh, OIS, which is the operational intercom system, and when they were talking about a particular. Uh, Part of it, such as the the turbo pumps or right. uh, the just filling the fuel tank, uh, the propellant tanks. Uh, you know, if you didn't know something about them and something went wrong, then you were in big trouble. Right. Uh, so, learning as much as you could about the nuts and bolts of the uh, the vehicle was the first thing. Uh, then you uh, undoubtedly know that a countdown actually starts about three days before right. uh, the launch of a shuttle. Uh, and there's some big gaps in that when there are what called built-in holds. And the purpose of a hold is to have some space uh, to catch up if you get behind in any of the tasks uh, that need to be done. Uh, 
it, the countdown is contained in uh, several volumes about, well, generally, depending on how you look at it, uh, three volumes. And it tells what has to be happening at any particular moment, what the job is, uh, whose job it is to do that, uh, whose job it is to say something that indicates that they are starting the process or finishing the process. Uh, so everything is pretty well scripted in a countdown. So before doing commentary, I would go through the countdown and uh, I would have it with me in the, uh, the firing room uh, so that I knew, you know, here's what I ought to be hearing. And then if I didn't know, if I didn't hear that, then I knew that something wasn't going the way it should and listened carefully on one of the 30 or so channels that I was able to listen to uh, to see what was going on at that particular moment. But the most important part of, the, of what I was doing was trying to keep uh, the news media and through the news media uh, the American public right. informed about what was happening on sort of a minute-by-minute -minute basis. Yeah, I mean, that you must have been sitting in on. Did you go ahead and, and kind of think of, like, okay, you know, we're at this point. I should say, I should actually say that. Did you actually kind of rehearse along with them as far as what you were, what you were going to say at this particular moment, this particular time? You're sort of thinking about it, writing down notes, and then, you know, you've got your, your what you wanted to say at that particular point. Um, it was, was that what you were kind of sort of doing at that point? Well, yes, I, I always had a uh, somewhat of a script. It couldn't be perfect, but uh, when we got to a, a certain thing, like um, uh, aligning the, uh, uh, the navigational system, then I would, you know, type out sort of a description of what the uh, engineer or the uh, technicians were doing at that moment and what that the purpose was of that particular uh, element of the uh, of the shuttle right so i had a lot of information in front of me to choose from uh, the you know the hardest part of the whole thing is listening to all of these channels of information and uh, sorting out what is uh, what is going on uh, so that you know when to talk about it but you also know what uh, differences there might be between what's happening and what's supposed to happen. By, by the way, just a, a salute to you, by the way. Um, it, something that I kind of wish some of the PAOs today did, especially during in, in the shuttle era, one of the things that I remember you doing, and I remember this vividly from STS-1, uh, was that you would, you know, you'd say, you know, this is, you know, a shuttle launch control announcement follows in 30 seconds, and then you'd stop, and then 30 seconds later, Mark, you did it. I kind of wish they did that still, because <laughs> that that was like, <laughs> I mean that, because that kind of said, oh, okay, that perked me up. All right, I got to, uh, let's wait and, and hear something. And then, you know, it was sort of an alert saying, okay, I, I better pay attention here. And then you went ahead and did the announcement. I kind of wish they still did that. Well, <laughs> That's just my observation. <laughs> well, thank you. But the, the whole purpose of that really was to alert the uh, the broadcasters uh, that something was coming up 
so that they knew uh, it was about time to uh, to do something. And, of course, we didn't do that as we got closer right. to the actual launch time. Uh, but at that time, uh, I was on uh, continuously after a certain period, and I've forgotten, uh, certainly during the last hour, I think I was on continuously. Mm -hmm. But, but the, one of the important things, I think, is to come on frequently enough that uh, uh, at least every five minutes, even when it's uh, a long time before launch, mm -hmm. so that uh, the, the people who are listening uh, don't think that things are going badly. Right. Because silence is not good sometimes. No. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. Um, the, the chapter that you wrote about the launch day in your book um, – for, for Challenger, uh, that evoked a lot of memories with me personally. I, first, it was written in such a manner that I felt as though I was riding shotgun with you, literally, that I was in the other seat sort of watching the, you know, not seeing the crowds that were usually there, probably because of the cold. But, again, this was the 25th Space Shuttle mission, and a lot of folks were saying, you know, shoot, these are getting to be like airliners. And NASA kind of made it look like, you know, this was sort of like a, 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 an airline to low Earth orbit, where in reality that was, that was far from it. Um, was that what you would hope to, you people would get out of that particular chapter to just kind of bring them back with you and try to invoke some of the memories that they may have had that day? Um, and really, was that one of the toughest parts of the book to write? Well, it, it probably was uh, from the, the standpoint of uh, it was a pretty emotional uh, occurrence in my life. And, uh, and, and while I'm writing that, uh, I'm sort of reliving all the things that went on. And uh, when I was uh, writing the book, I mean, one has to think even now as we did then, you know why did this happen? Uh, you know why did this happen? We know why it happened, right? But it but it shouldn't have happened, and uh, it, it didn't wouldn't have taken much to have changed the course of history, and and I think a lot of history is uh, is that way. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just just some of the just some of the the the, the uh, visions and some of the. The, the emotions you invoked in that chapter alone, I mean, it was just, just, just bone-chilling uh, in my eyes because, again, I remembered every moment of where I was that day, and I'm hoping that, that some of the readers will take that away from them. Even, but, but even the folks that may not have been around that day or are too young to remember, I hope, too, that they kind of take that away and just realized what, you know, realized that that whole moment was a part of history here. That day had to be just simply a nightmare for everybody, but um, I mean, it, it just seemed, you know, I, I listened to some of the, uh, um, some of the, uh, uh, I guess the, the commentary that Steve Nesbitt had to, had to give and, and so on of that, that particular, uh, of that particular event. You had to be thinking about him too during this whole thing. He had probably... Good Lord! Probably one of the one of the tougher jobs that day, as as you did. Um, but it just seemed to me too that there that everybody involved 
had this little switch in the back. They were mourning in their own way. They had this, you guys have that cloud above you knowing that your friends were gone. But there just seemed to be a switch over there where everybody went into professional mode. I mean, even you were saying, you know, let's make sure that we get the videotapes and pound them, you know, get get them out of there, get, you know, keep get a copy. The originals are going to get impounded. You know, you, you kind of went through the whole litany of things that you needed to do to go ahead and make sure that you could deliver to, to you, you know, your cons, your constituents, the press, what you needed to do. How difficult must was that to go ahead and just hit that switch and go into that, that steely mode when, when, you know, you had to be a mess inside? Well, I, I think that uh, everybody, well, everybody in the firing room and all of the, all of the engineers, the technicians who were working on it, uh, you know, knew, you know, here's what we have to do. And uh, you sort of put the rest of it out of your mind at that time. You really don't have time to, uh, if you start thinking about the, the people uh, who were on board and, uh, and you start thinking about the people who launched them uh, equally, uh, you, you know, you'd never get anything done. Right. And uh, and so it's very important to uh, you you know what you're supposed to do and you do it. Uh, we had a, uh, a contingency plan for public affairs, and and actually I had uh, uh, started doing commentary back in '63 uh, on unmanned launches. Right. And, and uh, uh, we had uh, a number of them who right. uh, went awry also. Uh, so. You, you know sort of what you're seeing and, and what's happening, and uh, you just have to do your job. And later on, uh, there'll be time to, uh, you know, to mourn what was happening. But uh, that period was pushed off uh, a lot because uh, for, the, uh, uh, for, for the first week or so, uh, we were had to have the press site open 24 hours a day, right? And then seven days a week after that for months, uh, because of the the volume of uh, inter- uh, people that were calling. And uh, it wasn't just the press, although the press certainly were the uh, uh, the largest group, but uh, a lot of the uh, outside public were calling uh, at this uh, also. Now, we did have a hiatus there uh, for about five hours because the phone system went down not only uh, at the Kennedy Space Center, but also uh, in uh, Orlando and the surrounding area Wow! because of the, uh, the volume of calls of, uh, of people uh, you know, calling each other or trying to find out what had happened. Uh, so the, uh, but once... Uh, the phone system was up and running again, uh, and the uh, the older calls had been dumped. Uh, then, of course, you know there was just one phone after another, uh, uh, one call on every phone, and we had dozens and dozens of phones at the uh, at the press site, and uh, had to have a lot of extra people uh, helping out. Wow, I'm I'm just I'm just thinking of, of the entire phone system, 
in the Orlando area going down as a result of all, all of this. That was just, I mean, it was almost like a, I hate to say this, but it was almost like a 9-11 type thing because that was the same thing here when that all happened. The entire phone system was out. But, of course, then again, the, the phone system was commandeered by the U.S. government later on. Well, the uh, actually there you know there didn't have to be any commandeering because we did have other uh, systems that we were able to talk on uh, for operational purposes. Right. But one one thing that I think is sort of curious, uh, it doesn't take a lot to bring the phone system down, because for instance, I remember um, it has to be 30, 40 years ago, there was snow in Orlando. And the phone system went down because every, it was such an unusual occurrence. Everybody was calling each other saying, look outside, it's snowing. <laughs> and, and the whole phone system went down. It wasn't for five hours, though. It was only for a very short time. But, but it, it can happen. Wow. <laughs> now, you, you kind of, in, in the book, you, you, you visited a, an interesting uh, little anecdote about, uh, well, uh, Bill Harwood, who was then with UPI, now with uh, CBS News. And the ext- he went through some extremes to get a, a story about the, the recovery of the crew compartment. And there was a sort of Rube Goldberg almost like, like apparatus that folks were using to kind of tap into um, the radio that was going on, the, the radio with the uh, the recovery forces out there, um, and just 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 the great lengths that that a lot of people were getting get, trying to get a story. And uh, Bill Hardwood succeeded because I believe he was the one who broke the uh, the story about the 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 uh, crew compartment being recovered. Um, do you recall anything else going? You know, a lot of other folks going two extremes to get the story or, or, or any moments like that that were just odd down there, not necessarily during 51L, but overall from your entire career? Well, the, uh, of course, Jay Barbary, who uh, broke the cause of the, uh, the accident, uh, and we, we had a policy. Uh, uh, the, my policy at the press site was, that we wanted to tell all of the press at the same time right. about uh, developments that were occurring. But if a news media person, uh, you know, found out on their own uh, something in particular, in this case, uh, what was the cause of the uh, of the destruction of the Challenger? Uh, you know, we would uh, not immediately rush out and tell everybody. Uh, you know, they would get their scoop, and uh, we would follow up with uh, any of the details we could. And um, he got that particular scoop because uh, the news media who lived in the area got to know uh, the uh, the engineers and mm-hmm. a lot of the managers. Right. And uh, so they uh, knew them on a, a personal basis. And... Uh, Sam Bedingfield, who uh, was a longtime engineer at the center, uh, matter of fact, he had been there for the uh, the launch of um, of Alan Shepard, and uh, had uh, been told uh, that he really needed to come down and work there by Gus Grissom, uh, who he had known uh, from the military. But in in any case, he had just retired, and uh, Jay knew that he still had a badge. 
and uh, that he would probably be interested in going and talking to people and finding out what he could. Mm -hmm. And uh, indeed, he was interested. And um, uh, so he went and uh, got into a couple of meetings and uh, uh, saw the uh, the video that uh, uh, you know that uh, uh, we had taken that showed the first puff of smoke coming out of the uh, uh, aft joint on the uh, solid rocket booster. So uh, he called. Uh, Jay had sort of deputized him as a uh, NBC <laughs> consultant, and uh, he called him and said, uh, you know, I've got it. And uh, Jay said, well, get hold of, the, uh, of that videotape that you saw. And he said, you want me to be shot? <laughs> but, of course, that wouldn't have happened. But, he, uh, you know, he wasn't about to go that far. <laughs> and... Uh, and then Ben Jay uh, and and all good people, all good news people, uh, you know, get more than one source for a major story. And uh, so Jay immediately came to me mm-hmm. and uh, came into my office, closed the door, and said, uh, "Are you hearing what the cause of the accident was?" And I said, "No." And he says, "Well, let me tell you what I'm hearing." And so he told me. And I said, you know, I, you know, I don't know that, uh, but I will check into it right away. But, uh, you know, I'll just tell you that uh, it's, uh, you know, that you're right, and uh, we will not uh, release it to everybody before you have a chance to use it. And um, uh, he just happened at that uh, moment uh, when he left my office to go outside. And there was the center director, um, Dick Smith, mm-hmm. and uh, he said, uh, you know, Dick, I just heard that this happened, and Dick said, you got it. <laughs> and so there he had uh, his confirmation. Right. Uh, and, um, the, uh, and then uh, we did uh, announce it uh, immediately after Jay used it on the air right. uh, and confirmed it, and then the next day, uh, showed the videotapes, but um, we we tried pretty hard to uh, stay on top of it. And uh, and in the case of Bill Harwood, uh, actually he walked in uh, to uh, the uh, press site uh, dome uh, where we had our offices at the same time uh, that I was uh, typing up the release about finding the crew uh, cabin mm-hmm. and. Uh, so he didn't find that out from the uh, the radio system he had set up, uh, but he was on the job, and he was the only one that came into the, I think it was, it was either a Saturday or Sunday, and nobody else was around. So he was able to get it uh, on the, uh, uh, the wires, uh, uh, you know, within seconds right. after right. that, and... Uh, we released it uh, within uh, minutes uh, after uh, after he did. So, so again, that that having that that little deal in a way kind of helped you guys out 
in in the press's eyes in a way saying that you know okay fine you you can have the scoop but you know you've got to go th- you got to go through us first that type of that, that type of thing at least that's well no, we didn't we didn't require that, that uh, our you know they could say anything they wanted right uh, it's uh, we didn't require them to tell us what they were going to report right and indeed a lot of them didn't. Uh, and as, as a result, they were wrong sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, but we, you know, said, you know, we will be happy to, you know, look into uh, whatever it is that you want to report and tell you whether it's right or wrong, and we won't break your confidence. Uh, so we tried to, uh, you know, maintain a uh, a professional relationship with them. But also one in which uh, they were not going to be put in jeopardy, or uh, at least for that story, right. uh, by by asking us about it. Right. Um, just to, earlier, uh, you alluded to sort of you know the sort of being a bit of a uh, taking a look at history and what it could teach us, and so on. Um, sadly, history repeated itself some 17 or 18 years later. In fact, uh, um, Sally Ride, bless her, had said that uh, one could replace the names, but the, the situation w- w- was almost the same, alluding to 51L and then um, STS-107, Columbia. Um, do you do you also see parallels between the two situations between I know you weren't you weren't no longer with NASA with on on uh, STS-107 but did you kind of see some parallels between the two events or or did you kind of look at them as two separate you know two separate entities oh no and and I have uh, in in my book uh, Challenger uh, an American tragedy uh, I talk a little bit about that uh, because we uh, certainly had not learned, uh, or not everybody had learned the lessons from uh, Challenger. Uh, there had been a long history, ever since the beginning practically, of material coming off of the uh, uh, coating on the external tank and uh, impacting uh, the uh, the shuttle or the orbiter. And... Uh, the, in some cases, uh, doing damage to the, uh, the thermal protection system. Now, it wasn't that people weren't looking at that and trying to fix it. There were uh, all sorts of, uh, of uh, times that they uh, thought that it was fixed, uh, but it wasn't completely fixed. Right. And uh, somebody asked me the other day, as a matter of fact, and, and it's something that I think is probably true, is that when it was painted white uh, for the first launch, Mm -hmm. uh, which added about 500 pounds or so of paint to the vehicle, uh, it probably prevented uh, material of the the insulation on the external tank from coming off, Uh, maybe not in every area, but in most of the areas. And... uh, when it was decided not to paint the tank in order to save weight and increase the uh, payload capacity, uh, then that, of course, was uh, possibly one of the problems. But anyway, going back to the uh, uh, to the uh, 
uh, the loss of Columbia, the, um, that was a case where there was a pretty good-sized chunk that came off and, uh, and hit the, uh, the leading edge of the wing. Now, they didn't realize uh, that inside the orbiter uh, that there had been damage done there. Mm -hmm. uh, but nevertheless, uh, uh, because we had never solved that problem, and it, it's a, a very tricky uh, uh, technical problem to solve, uh, that caused the, the loss of the orbiter as it re-entered. And uh, I think, they, uh, and of course, that's why we're getting a whole different configuration now right. on, on the uh, the new heavy lift vehicle and the Orion capsule. And going back to where we mount the uh, uh, the crew compartment on the nose of the rocket, and that's so uh, nothing can uh, fall off. Also, the thing that was uh, uh, along the, somewhat the same lines but didn't really come into play was the shuttle was the first vehicle with a crew that did not have right. an, uh, uh, the capability of pulling the uh, the crew off of it if something was going wrong with the uh, the rocket and uh, of course we're going back to a, a system where there is a uh, an escape tower that uh, would right. pull the Orion off of the uh, uh, the nose of uh, the rocket and uh, and help the people escape. Yeah, I still say, I mean, even today, the uh, one of the commercial crew uh, vehicles, Dream Chaser, also, even though it's a mini shuttle, it's going to be sitting on uh, on top of an Atlas V. Uh, right. right. Totally unencumbered by the, by the booster itself. It'll be right on top of the vehicle. And... Um, uh, I, I still consider, to, to, to just to add, add something personally, I still consider STS-1 probably one of the bravest things I've ever seen two people ever do in my life <laughs> because of that reason alone, because there was no escape system. And, uh, you know, everybody, you know, I with, with 51L even, I was thinking RTLS, and then I asked, you know, when did it occur? Uh, for for those of you who don't know what that is, that means a return to launch site. That means, you know, and it's it's a rather dramatic maneuver that one doesn't really want to want to go ahead and do, but the astronauts do train for it. Um, but even then, at, at seventy three seconds, there was nothing it could have done. It just stopped. No, that's right. And uh, of course, a lot of people didn't understand that. Even uh, one of the engineers who was at the press site. Uh, Ran around, along the uh, the front of the uh, stands that we had press in, saying RTLS, RTLS, and uh, all of us, of course, who thought about it, uh, knew that when you lost the external tank, uh, and of course the solids also, that you couldn't have an RTLS right. because uh, you needed to get the uh, uh, the uh, uh, orbiter up higher and uh, on its way, uh, and then, of course, it has to have the external tank's propellants in order to turn around and, uh, and fire its engines in the opposite direction in order to come back. But um, the, uh, it's a, uh, a, a, a very tricky maneuver, as you point out.
Yeah, and it's it's not something that you really wanted to do. Uh, but if you had, you know you knew you were going to have a bad day, if you you yet you had to pull that maneuver off. Right uh, now, one one thing I I want to uh, correct on the uh, the first launch uh, with two people in it, and I think it was on the first three at least, maybe four. Uh, they did have ejection seats uh, for the uh, for two. Uh, for two crew people. Right. Uh, it was only after we went to uh, more crew uh, that we no longer could use that system. Now, that was only good for a very, very short period of time. Right. So it wasn't a uh, perfect system. And then for the bulk of the, uh, the shuttle program, uh, there was uh, nothing until after Challenger when uh, – in, again, a very small window, uh, they would have been able to uh, leave the crew cabin and slide down the pole and so avoid uh, impacting uh, uh, the, uh, the tail of the uh, orbiter as they tried to get out. But you can't do that uh, until uh, when you're, uh, you know, very high up because you're you're just not going to have uh, uh, enough oxygen and uh, and time to uh, survive. Right, and I recall some of the crew saying, "Did they, you know, when asked if that system would act, did they think that that system would actually work?" Um, some of those folks said, "No, but at least you know, we'll give us something to do before you know, before <laughs> before well before." That's so, exactly you know, right. You know, there was a lot of you know, so in essence, there was a lot of you know, gallows humor, and and a lot of I, I know that some of the folks actually even looked at the ejection seats as somewhat problematic too. Uh, oh, that, that's right. No, there was not a not a perfect system. Right. Um, now, others have kind of picked up their pen and and taken on the, the duty of writing about that fateful day back in uh, January 28th, uh, 1986, um, and they've taken their different tacks and so on. Um, what do you hope that a reader of your story might take away that is from your book that is familiar with, with, um, with the SDS-51L accident and uh, even maybe those who may not be familiar with that fateful day. What do you hope they, they get from that, from that whole story? Well, I, I hope that they get a, uh, a feel uh, for the people who are involved in, uh, in, uh, in a uh, program like the, uh, well, the space program in general and the, uh, the shuttle program. Uh, the, uh, the people really uh, are extraordinary uh, in, in many ways. And they're very normal people in other ways. And uh, we, used, we used to talk about uh, ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And uh, it really has to do with uh, uh, everybody, uh, you know, training and doing their particular job and the coordination of this huge group because you're talking ultimately hundreds of thousands of people who are involved. Uh, and putting all of that together uh, is makes a very complex program. So there was nobody uh, that was involved in the accident uh, either time uh, who consciously did not want it to succeed. Uh, 
did they make some bad decisions? Yeah, uh, in hindsight, they certainly made some bad decisions. But technical problems are, are pretty difficult, and they often uh, have people arguing on both sides of them. And, uh, but I think the, the thing to, uh, you know, one lesson is that you need to think about what is your motivation in, right. uh, in making the decision you're making in addition to uh, the technical know-how that you're bringing to it. Uh, because the uh, uh, the motivation sometimes can change the way you look at the uh, the, the technical reasons, but mostly uh, I wanted uh, that the facts you know didn't change over the last 28 years as to what happened and what caused it to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, but I didn't feel that anybody had written the book and. and I would have liked it to be a much longer book uh, that could really talk about the uh, the kind of people who are involved. And one one of them, uh, just if I can go on a second. By all means, uh, please. Uh, the commander, uh, Dick Scobie, uh, is what you would have in the old days called a Horatio Alger story. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that, of course, is about somebody who uh, brings themselves up with their bootstraps uh, uh, to success. Uh, he had actually been an engine mechanic uh, when he started in the Air Force and, uh, and of course, was an enlisted person. He wasn't an officer. Uh, and he used the time that he was there, his spare time while he was in the Air Force, uh, to go to college uh, and to get a degree and also, uh, as I recall, he uh, learned to fly in small planes. And when he graduated from college, he was able to uh, then uh, apply for flight training, and he became a, uh, an accomplished uh, test pilot and uh, eventually uh, became a, uh, an astronaut and, of course, uh, uh, flew uh, uh, on 51L, and he had uh, had a, a couple of flights before that. Mm -hmm. But the uh, everybody uh, has a story, and I think it's important to uh, to think of people as people, uh, and mostly people that you would really like to know, and that you can just get a glimpse. Because what I wrote uh, in um, Challenger: An American Tragedy is a very short book, but that's what the publisher wanted. And uh, so I couldn't go into a lot of the, uh, the details of, uh, of people's lives and uh, how they came to be there at that particular moment and uh, why they made the decisions they did. That was one of the things I was going to ask, if there was anything missing that you kind of wish you could have included in this. And, you know, was that one of them, or, or is there anything else that you kind of wish you, you kind of could have stuffed into this 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 uh, this bag on on your book here. Well, everything uh, uh, I, I guess everything that I would like to have put in involves people because that's what the program's all about, and uh, and that's what uh, humans do. Uh, I, I think the uh, you know we always talk about the need to explore. 
the need to learn. And uh, while that is an interesting thing, it's sort of a sterile idea in some ways. Right. Uh, and it's really people and uh, each one of them having a, a piece of, of that. And, uh, and what they do affects the lives of everybody on the earth. And the old adage, you know, the six degrees of separation that we all kind, we all are connected in some way, shape, or form. I guess, and that 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 story is is typified here as well. Um, we've been talking a lot of gloom and doom type stuff here. Is there any kind of memorable moment? You know, kind of like a high point you remember, not just in preparation for for fifty one L, but at any time during. During your uh, your tenure over at uh, over at uh, KSC, was there just one moment where it just you know even today it, it just kind of brings you to tears laughing about it? Well, I don't know whether there's a you know one particular moment. I I think that uh, uh, w- w- we who worked in in public affairs are among the luckiest people uh, who work for the agency or in any kind of job. Uh, because we get to explore uh, and learn about everything that's going on. Uh, Most people uh, have a fairly small area uh, that they may know everything about, uh, but they don't uh, get a chance to learn about everybody else's. And in public affairs, we do that. So Mm -hmm. I I count myself as being, you know, particularly... uh, lucky in in what I uh, ended up doing. Uh, but the, uh, the thing that probably what didn't bring me to tears and makes <laughs> me happy is the all of the interesting things that have come out of the space program. The space program uh, probably returns more value to the country than any other program uh, ever has. And uh, I think that, you know, that is going to continue on. It has uh, nothing to do with the, uh, uh, with the uh, it, well, it's separate from the part of learning more about the, the science and the technology, but the, the way in which the uh, NASA operates uh, by using private industry uh, on every project means that what is learned can be turned into uh, devices and systems that help people uh, and uh, directly and very, very fast compared with if we all did it uh, in one, you know, we built a big factory and we did everything uh, in-house, right. it, would, it would take years for the technology to be transferred. So the transfer of technology to the general public, I think, is one of the things that uh, makes me happiest about uh, NASA. Yeah, you, you wrote a rather fascinating piece, I thought, in the Christian Science Monitor very recently about the, the current state of affairs with uh, the U.S. space program and, again, the need for, for proper funding being the key, key to success on the program. Could you kind of comment a little bit about where we are now and, you know, where do you think we need to get the program going to be in a far more uh, robust posture than it, than it is? And, you know, if, 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 like, for instance, if you were in charge today 
how would you kind of solve one of the biggest problems? And I think you mentioned it also in that article. Um, how do you, how do you solve the the public image right now that NASA's out of business? And I, I get that every day, every time I, we I have a discussion with somebody that doesn't follow the program a lot. Um, that oh, the shuttle program's over, NASA's done with. How do you escape that kind of uh, that kind of mentality? And how do you get people thinking? No, your program, the space program, isn't dead. It's doing a lot of fascinating things. Well, I'm tempted to say you need a magic wand (laughs) to just wave it and make that happen. Uh, It's really the responsibility of of everybody in the country uh, to stay abreast of of what's happening. And that's a really tough thing to do because everybody has uh, to make a living and they have uh, their world that they have to uh, uh, function in. So the, um, the 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 big uh, the the easiest thing uh, that could happen is for Congress to agree uh, and the White House to agree on a level of funding uh, that still stays probably under one cent of every tax dollar, but uh, is not subject uh, is is allocated on the basis of, uh, of programs right. uh, rather than on a yearly basis uh, so that when you start a program uh, as it is today, uh, you know, somebody could cancel it at the end of the first year when it's really a 10-year program or a five-year program. And uh, that, that is a, a great waste uh, when that happens. Now, what usually happens is that it gets slowed down because the uh, the budget uh, is trimmed or there's money added, uh, and you start something, but you can't finish it because then it changes the next year, and you try and co- you you continue it, but with lower funding and. Uh, uh, the problem is then that if the longer you stretch something out, the more it costs because you have to keep a certain amount of infrastructure. So if I, you know, could change that, I would, uh, you know, change the way that things are funded. Uh, and, of course, the, uh, I think that NASA is doing uh, almost everything it can to try and keep the uh, the uh, the public uh, informed. Now, one of the very heartening things that happening is in the social media. Uh, the uh, NASA in the uh, legislation that created it uh, was given the responsibility uh, for keeping the public informed and telling people, you know, what was going on. Uh, now, you in, in order to do that, you have to have a lot of help out there because it's not NASA's job to build huge uh, broadcasting systems all over the country or to operate uh, uh, in a way that goes directly to people, although uh, it does certainly some of that. But you need to have the the reporters from the, the standard news media and then having the uh, uh, the help uh, of a very valuable 
um, a group of people who uh, talk to each other on the social media and hopefully talk a little bit about the space program, it gets uh, tremendous leverage that way. Uh, so I am very heartened uh, by what is happening with things like your your broadcast uh, in particular and with the, uh, the people who are uh, uh, coming to the center now uh, who would not have come before because they're, they don't actually work for a large news organization. The, the other thing that uh, is uh, important uh, is that we're doing, uh, the, well, NASA is doing, uh, you know, what it really was formed to do in turning over to private industry uh, the things that they can do uh, in a way that is economically sound and, uh, and they can actually uh, make a profit at. And that has happened all through the program and uh, then has come to the point where they're actually buildings of rockets and spacecraft uh, to go up and operate in uh, low Earth orbit. And that allows NASA to go on to uh, the thinking about farther out and to, and to uh, doing that sort of work that's needed. Uh, the, uh, the thing that happened that uh, I would have changed if I could, but I mm -hmm. can't, it's too late, <laughs> uh, is that the shuttle program could have been uh, continued uh, safely, I think, and uh, Bob Crippen, who wrote the introduction uh, to uh, the, uh, the book uh, Challenger, an American Tragedy, uh, uh, has written op-ed pieces about that, too, uh, is the, if the, uh, the shuttle program had been continued uh, on a uh, fairly small scale until private industry was able to uh, fly our own astronauts, uh, that that would have uh, uh, kept the uh, the public uh, uh, paying more attention uh, than than they have um, uh, uh, since the shuttle program uh, ended. But in any case, the uh, you know work is being done. Uh, we're going to we're in the process of where uh, the Orion capsule is going to be uh, tested uh, this coming year, and. Uh, then will be uh, uh, taken out uh, fairly far uh, away from Earth mm -hmm. and uh, driven back into the atmosphere to ensure the uh, uh, the integrity of the uh, the whole design uh, in returning uh, from uh, the vicinity of the moon or farther out from that. So there there are things that are going on. The uh, the large uh, 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 space launch vehicle, uh, so-called, which will be more powerful than the Saturn V. Uh, work is underway uh, in that as well. And um, it, it is unfortunate, uh, but, it's, uh, but also it's uh, lucky uh, <laughs> that uh, we are able to use the Russians uh, for going up to the, uh, the space station and extending the uh, space station's life in orbit is uh, is certainly an important thing that 
that the White House and uh, Congress decided was a good thing to do. Yeah, that, that was one of the things we also applauded here on our program, that uh, ISS had been extended through at least 2024. A lot of people are kind of thinking, oh, maybe this puppy's going to go to 2028. Who knows? So um, ISS looks like it's going to be with us for a while. Just to touch on a couple of things, the, the, it, it's interesting, too, that you saw that the um, the new media, you know, being what we're doing here, and the older, I don't want to say older media, but the, the more established media really are partners. A lot, a lot of the folks in um, in the established media don't look at us as partners, sort of like, you know, okay, what are they doing here? You know, we, we real media have deadlines. We, you know, these guys don't. Um, you know, some, some folks have taken that tack, um, but it, it's kind of interesting that you, you kind of look at, at, at social media and what, you know, what we're trying to do through some unconventional means like this, like this particular uh, uh, pro- internet radio program um, are really partners in this. And that's the way I kind of see it. I don't look at us as competitors at all. I think we're actually partner partners in this. We're all on the same team. We're all trying to get the information out and we're all trying to do the best we can. And in some cases we can, we can pick up things that maybe uh, the, uh, the established media might leave behind. So in, in, so in, in a way we can really, really tell the full story. And it's kind of funny too, you, you agreed along the same lines that, um, uh, that that commercial space and 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 NASA are partners in this. There's no you know this old space versus new space. You know what I think is just absolute nonsense. It's not a competition between the two. Both of them, both NASA and commercial, need each other right now. They really honestly do because that's where commercials getting being a lot being where the some of the innovations being being. Uh, being stirred and so on, but NASA's the one kind of leveraging some of that too. So it's, 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 again, it's a partnership and I'm glad, glad that, that you of all people had, 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 had come to realize that and then come to, come to just say that. So that was one of the big things that we've been championing here on, on our, on our program. Um, and, uh, just, just in, in, in closing, what kind of advice would you give, uh, somebody, uh, that would want to be the next Hugh Harris as far as trying to get into NASA and trying to basically follow in your footsteps? Well, I, I've talked to people uh, throughout the, the last 50 years about that, and my belief is that the uh, having a uh, good uh, education and grounding uh, in the uh, in the journalism area or in the writing area certainly uh, is absolutely essential and probably the uh, the reason I say that is that writing something requires organizing it and uh, requires research and all of the sort of disciplines that you would have to use in the, the sort of job you had so it's a uh, it's a it's a, an exciting uh, thing to do. I think, as I said, that being able to uh, uh, see what's happening in a, in a very broad look at the agency is one of the most satisfying uh, things that I can think of. Yeah, agreed. Um, so if somebody was interested in, in getting a hold of your book, uh, how would they go about doing that? Well, it's available uh, on Amazon and all of the other uh, uh, media for ebooks. 
Uh, of course, the title is Challenger and American Tragedy. And uh, it's a very short ebook, therefore, it's cheap. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, and I, I certainly, uh, uh, you know, would. Uh, uh, take a look at the uh, at the websites and at the reviews of it, and uh, and I have gotten. I, I really wish I could post uh, somewhere uh, the things that I have gotten from people uh, about it, uh, because uh, a lot of them uh, uh, said, you know, they they really felt. Uh, like they were there and yes. understood it uh, a whole whole lot uh, more. Yeah, I, I'm. I'll, I'll attest to that one. Uh, I've read uh, several several books on on the uh, on the tragedy tragedy and on Challenger and, and that whole fateful day. And um, this one, it was written so vividly that I I thought that I was actually there. And uh, this was the f- this was one of the first times I'd have to say that I felt as though I was actually there. And I've read a lot of a lot on this. I, I've written a few papers on this for for my uh, for for my degree, you know, my, my bachelor's degree, and so on. And and it, it just, uh, I mean, I, I I felt that you took me there in plain well, English. I, I I appreciate your your saying that, and uh, and and that's really what. Uh, you know, my career pretty much was pretty much a lot, uh, about uh, the uh, when I was the uh, uh, director of public affairs, uh, I oversaw the the press activities and the educational ones, and and that is a a great partnership that uh, NASA has with uh, the outside world uh, is what they have done in the education area and uh, and trying to make sure that uh, people uh, in uh, schools from uh, elementary through uh, college uh, are getting uh, the uh, advantage of, uh, of knowing what's going on and, uh, and then even uh, Partnering in a lot of cases in the robotics area and various others. Mm-hmm. So it's a. Uh, I, I think that you know what NASA is all about is making people's lives better, and uh, I think that's uh, something that uh, uh, people need to realize. It's not just another government agency. Indeed, and you're, 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 I'm, I'm in total agreement with that, with that statement there. I'll, I'll tell you that much, uh, Mr. U. Harris. Thanks so much for spending some time with us on Talking Space today. I really do appreciate it, and all the best with this, this story. This is, uh, it, for those of you who, who are uh, inclined, go ahead, download this, please, and then you know, strap yourself in because you're in for one heck of a ride. Again, my, my, really, really thanks for, for being here today. I appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. I I appreciate what you're doing, and I appreciate your having me on. Thank you again so much. (laughs) And that wraps up this edition of Talking Space. I want to thank Mr. U. Harris for spending some time with us tonight. also want to thank our esteemed friends over at Astronomy FM who have been supporting us over these years, and I also want to thank our hosting service Podbean and you our listeners for continuing to go ahead and making us part of your day so again many many thanks for uh, Kat Robeson Mark Ratterman and Sawyer Rosenstein I'm Gene McCulka thank you for listening (music) 